Rescued is a podcast of conversations with rescuers and those who've been rescued. It's about the lessons we learn about ourselves, the places we go and why, without judgment, to help us have better adventures, manage risk and deal with the unexpected. The following episode touches on subjects such as trauma, mental health and suicide. So please take a sec and consider who's listening, and that includes you. And remember, if you need to chat things through, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or visit beyondblue.org.au. You know those people you keep hearing about in life, you're talked about by people that you respect, but your paths have never actually crossed? Well, that's my guest for this episode of Rescued. Matthew Bryan's story is so powerful, having been both a rescuer during his 17-year policing career, most of that within Police Rescue Squad, then as a retained firefighter in Fire and Rescue New South Wales. Look, he's done literally hundreds of rescues and saved countless lives whilst risking his own. And what's special about Matt is during this time, he also found himself in the critical position of needing to be rescued himself. So because of this, and as well as him being an absolutely top and lovely bloke, I've asked him to join me for a double episode to share about his experiences from both sides of the rescue coin. Today, he's on a different journey, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. Matthew Bryan, welcome to Rescued. Yeah, thanks, Caro. So Matt, why don't we start with the stuff that we all have in common, you know, a love of the bush and of and of nature. Talk to me about what your earliest memory was of getting out in the bush. I think as a kid, like I, I was pretty lucky. I grew up out in Bathurst in the central west of New South Wales. So I spent most of my time like all my mates on BMX bikes out in the you know, on the fringes of town at least, and, uh, you know, love trout fishing. So I'd, I'd ride my bike literally for hours just to get on a nice secluded part of the Macquarie River and uh, go fishing. So I, I absolutely loved, you know, getting out of town. Off the concrete, hey? Yeah, get off the concrete and uh, probably worried my mother sick most weekends because no mobile phones or anything and I'd go missing for, you know, the entire day and she'd have absolutely no idea where I was and what I'd gotten up to. But you guarantee I wasn't in town. So um, I've, I've loved the outdoors and, you know, as a young bloke, I think that evolved like many of my friends into, you know, army army stories and, you know, wandering around the bush with a backpack thinking you're in Vietnam. And, yeah, I certainly did a lot of, you know, very ill-prepared solo uh, trips in my younger years in, in the bush. and A few epics there. Yeah. And uh, actually, I, I moved up to... Uh, place called Ocean Shores near Brunswick Heads when I was a uh, just in my early high school years and I actually didn't like it up there too much but it was a great place to go exploring I didn't like the humidity and the cane toads actually that's what I didn't like about the place but the uh yeah I spent a lot of time you know exploring the rivers and just wandering around the bush and, and a lot of that was actually on my own so I'd uh you know do my best research in my uh, SAS survival handbook and go out and try new things out in the bush and see how they worked from the uh, from the book to the field. But yeah, I certainly uh, spent my fair share of my childhood out, out in the sticks for sure. And, and so thinking back to those times and those sort of epic adventures that you had and, you know, your SAS handbook and, you know, boys own adventure kind of thing. Can you remember what that place made you feel and what it felt like and what it did for you as a person? It's never really changed, actually. It's always been a a comfortable place for me. I think just the, you know, going somewhere where you can't hear anyone. I think that's why I love the Simpson desert so much because you get out there and you're so far away from everything and everyone. And, you know, all you can hear is that, you know, <laughs> that sandy desert, and not much else. And, uh, you know, I love that sort of isolation. And uh, I think that just that comfort or that, I actually don't know what it is, but it, it draws me back, that's for sure. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> and I think, you know, as a kid, you know, I used to look in, in envy when uh, Les Hiddens had a show. Oh, yeah. And a major from the Australian Army had that Bush Tucker Man show and I used to look at the places that he went and went, wow, I'd love that job. You know, I just used to watch those things relentlessly while I was stuck at home in the house. I'd just, you know, watch that, watch that as my escape, watching where he was. So uh, Stuck at home with the cane toes. Yeah. Thinking of work then, 
how did you know? How did you go from being you know this cane toed swatting kid in Brunswick heads, uh, having little epics of your own <laughs> out in the bush, to to then sort of finding yourself on this this policing pathway? How how did the career sort of side of things come up for you? Yeah, straight out of school, uh, I, I was probably just a little lost. I, I didn't really exactly know what I wanted to do, so I went and worked as a jackaroo out on a farm out in the central western New South Wales for a few years, and uh, you know that was you know a good combination of outdoor life and work blended in together as a, as a farmhand living that life. But I soon realized that there was another calling for me and, and policing certainly in my family. So a lot of, lot of people like myself are a bit torn between do they go in defense or policing or fire brigade or ambos or something like that. And I think the policing path for me was a little bit already uh, paved in a, in a way given the uh, family history in there. So I, I went down that path. Yeah, lucky for me, I started at Penrith for, for uh, six months and then up into the mountains. The second station in, in uh, my service was up at Katoomba. So, yeah, I started up there in my very junior policing days at the age of 21, I think I would have been about then. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, A, you got posted to God's own country pretty early on there. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty nice. Yeah. Had, you, had you spent much time in the Blue Mountains before then? No, not at all, actually. And one of the reasons the, uh, that Katoomba was my place of choice, we didn't really get a lot of say in where we went. We could sort of make an indication, but it, it was as far west as you could go in the Sydney Metropolitan Policing Zone. And uh, and my class was all Sydney Metropolitan placed. So I got as far west as I possibly could, and that was Katoomba. And uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, I quickly learned to love the place and... Um, there's a tiny bit of early, I suppose, mishap connection to the to the mountains. Uh, in uh, actually, two of my school friends actually lost their lives in the Blue Mountains when we were, um, yeah, when we we're in the sort of high school years. One one died in a plane crash over the over the mountains with another uh, young bloke in a plane, and and another uh, fellow was hit by a car trying to help a horse off the road on the Bells on a Road. So, oh. you know, realistically, that's. Um, I probably, uh, <laughs> I probably should have looked more into that before I started doing what I did up there. But um, yeah, th- there was there was no connection to the Blue Mountains for me, other than you know trying to get west in the police. And uh, mm-hmm. but you know it didn't take too long before I, uh, like most people's stories in the mountains, I think you get up there and you go, "Wow, well, I'm not going. I'm not going anywhere." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what, what surprised you? Like, you know, you said you had that history within the family of, of policing, but it was, you know, you sort of probably had heard stories from, from them about what to expect. But when you actually got into the job, when you found yourself, you know, in uniform, pounding the pavement as a, so general duties yep. to start, yeah. Um, what surprised you? What weren't you expecting? Well, I don't think I was expecting anything that happened in the police, to be honest with you. It's uh, one of those things that you can get a, go and do a whole load of training uh, to to get you as ready as you can be but it's a it's a wild um, it's a wild job you know like uh, there's stuff that happens in the community in every community you know throughout the country that people wouldn't believe or you know it's quite hard to fathom when you when you're not exposed to it on, on that uh, in that frequency I guess but it was so different for me actually coming from Penrith up to Katoomba as you could imagine the the, <laughs> the work uh, the work was very different in a policing context. Yeah, I think the the one thing that was at Katoomba that wasn't anywhere else or was in the Blue Mountains was actually the police rescue side of things, and that uh, quickly caught my attention. You know, I love police work. Don't get me wrong, catching catching crooks and you know helping people—that's what you join that job for. And and you know, I did that for a long time. Um, but I used to watch the rescue guys and thought, yeah, that they're having more fun than me. They're <laughs> <You know, laughs> going to domestics and. Uh, you know, chasing hoodlums on Friday and Saturday nights. I thought, man, sort of, it quickly caught my attention. Actually, uh, back in the early time, I think I'd sort of started doing quite a bit of canyoning and, um, you know, done a, done a fair share of bushwalking and a lot of uh, physical training actually just out in the bush, just as part of how I was living up there at the time. But when I started down the canyoning route, I just, I loved it. And I, I, I knew the rescue guys were doing, doing that for work. And, <laughs> um, yeah, and then um, yeah, the Threadbow landslide happened, mm-hmm. and you know to watch these the deployments that they were doing down there to help with the landslide, and um, you know just the I guess that um, just knowing that major operation was going on in the background and what they were doing down there, I thought, wow, that'd be great to be part of that. So I think that's where it really did spark my interest in seriously thinking about how to get into it. 
because there's that thing that I've always thought of with with the cops is that you know there's not really many other careers in this world where you see people on the worst day of their lives often no, you know no. and there's something about rescue though then that is this branch of the police that people are always happy to see whereas yeah, you know as a, yeah. as a gen- I think it's about the only one yeah <laughs> As a general duty, you you're likely to see people who aren't that happy to see you sometimes. But um, but rescue is the other yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, very big contrast, actually. Yeah, super. Uh, you know, and it was quite strange. You know, you go from a Friday night on general duties, doing the usual Friday night alcohol fueled jobs, and you know. <laughs> And everything that comes with that, and then if uh, in, in in that part time role when I was doing rescue part time, you know, you could go from literally being de- deployed to a pub brawl, and the next thing you know, you've got to race back to the station, grab the rescue truck, change your clothes, and take off to an accident or something else. So, um, really different work. It couldn't have been a bigger contrast, to be honest with you. And I don't know that there's too many sections in the police that would have that sort of variation in their day to day work. Do you want to just talk about that a bit more? Because I don't think um, I don't think a lot of people understand that you said change your clothes. I kind of think it like like Superman popping into the the phone box. Sometimes you're changing <laughs> out of the blues and into the whites. And I think you know um, if we were to believe you know good old Gary Sweet back in the back in the nineties in <laughs> in Police Rescue that that ABC show that the, you know there's this huge station full of like people always in white full time. But that's not always the yeah. case, is it? No, and definitely not back in the early days. There was only really one full-time rescue squad operator in the Blue Mountains that was the the rescue coordinator, the sergeant, and everybody else was a part-time operator. So they were either in general duties, highway patrol, or or some other duties as a in their primary policing role, and then as a part-time role, they would do rescue. The police do have quite a few part-time positions where um, specialist duties are done on the side of another duty. But yeah, rescue is uh, it's certainly one of the more technical and contrasting ones. A lot of the other ones are sort of still law enforcement focused, like public order and riot squad and things like that, that are still, you know, what you would guess would be main mainstream police work. And, and I'm not 100% sure. I think New South Wales might be the only state in the country that's actually got that dedicated police allocation to that rescue function. I know um, I was actually only just talking to a, a uh, South Australian police officer the other day and yeah, he was saying, he was explaining the star group down there, special tasks and rescue, but they're, they're a joint tactical and rescue squad. So they do special weapons and, and armed defender work with a rescue capability. And, and that's how I think a lot of the other states are configured. If there is a rescue function there, it's tied up in that tactical element. But getting back to what you said, yeah, definitely you know, when I first started in it, every operator was a part-time operator. So, you know, they, they were either at home on call on a day off or between shifts or on call while they're at work. So, yeah, you were right. And and usually you didn't actually have time to completely get changed. You'd throw the whites over the blues and you'd see these little blue <laughs> general duty shirt collars sticking out from under the white overalls and uh, at the accidents and things like that where it was a, you know, a real scramble for time. So, um that's uh, that's sort of how it works. Very very big contrast in the mm. uh, in the job uh, on the day, yeah, that you could be doing. Mm. Do you have a personal story about an incident or rescue during an outdoor trip when something didn't quite go to plan? Maybe you got lost, injured, let down by some gear, preparation or something else. Look, honestly, it can happen to any of us at any time, regardless of how experienced we are. And it's by sharing these stories and tales that we can all learn and help to avoid them in the future. So if that's you, I'd love to hear from you. So please drop me an email to rescued at lotsoffreshair.com. That's rescued with a D. So Threadbow happened and your your mind was turned over to see, hang on, there's this other side of, you know, doing, like you said, this canyoning, this stuff that you were starting to do a lot more of in your own life. How did you then progress through into rescue and, and what's that pathway? How was that for you? To be honest with you, I'd, I'd obviously been, you know, uh, ex- showing an interest to the to the current operators just with my outdoor pursuits of my own time. So, um, you know, pretty jealous while I'm going between domestics and noise complaints while they're out, you know, <laughs> uh, practicing uh, what I would do on a day off. So I thought, wow, I've got to get into that. The pathway in there literally was 
vacancy's got to be available first up and then apply for it, like most things in the police and most other government departments. Um, there's certainly assessments, suitability assessments and things that you've got to go through just to make sure that you've got the physical and technical aptitude for the role. And then then they send you on for your uh, initial training, which was, uh, I think it's still the same, actually six weeks uh, straight. Did that in 1999. And, that, and that, that's actually going back to your police rescue show uh, down in Sydney is exactly where they um, modelled that show off because it is exactly what you think it would be where they've got full-time operators and trucks everywhere and, you know, rolling to jobs and uh, you're just waiting for that phone to ring a bit, bit more like the fire brigade do, I guess, in that sense. And so then you based back up in the Blue Mountains into rescue. What were the kind of things that you were doing? What kind of jobs were you finding yourself on? Uh, I guess back in those days, the highway wasn't as good as it is these days. So we used to do a lot of MVA work, uh, like I say, just normal road accident rescue type response work. And uh, But, you know, we still got our fair share of bushwork. You know, realistically, that was what I was interested in was the rope and remote area work rather than the heavy rescue and industrial type work that actually was part of the deal. And I'm not sure that I would have pursued it, to be honest with you, if it was more of a heavy industrial rescue area. Um, I don't know that I actually would have gone down that path because that, that was certainly never what drove me to try and push for getting better at it and, you know, really trying to explore how to, how to do this job better and give you that drive. You know, that, that, uh, that sort of constant workload of search and rescue, cliff work, um, over, overdue walkers, um, the, the unfortunate element that uh, is part of the work up in the Blue Mountains, obviously a lot of suicides up there over, off the cliffs and things like that, which is a, probably a little bit unique, mm-hmm. probably other than the uh, Sydney cliff line in that sense. That was a fairly decent workload back in those days with the resources that we had. And I know the jobs up there these days are magnitudes more frequent than what they were back then, but you know the resources were also a lot uh, slimmer. It's always sporadic, you know, that work is... Um, Never, never very predictable. Uh, but obviously, summer with the tourism comes more more bush jobs, and then wet weather and bad weather, more accidents. So you could nearly always pick it. <laughs> Isn't that the interesting thing though about um, about summer being the more jobs? Like yeah. it's like the time when the the I guess the more experienced bushwalkers and hikers and stuff. We know that actually winter's an awesome time yeah. to, to, <laughs> to go and climb some big hills and you know get out to Kananga and all that kind of stuff. But it's the it's those summer months when people have the time off and they go, oh, I know, I'll go for my one once yeah. a year bushwalk. Yeah, and you know probably the conditions aren't that enjoyable, really. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think you find people out in the bush, uh, particularly in the Blue Mountains in winter, um, you know, if they're, if, they're, if they're out there, then they usually know what they're doing, better prepared because they've got the, you know, they've invested that preparation and, and capability to, to do whatever it is that they're doing. Uh, there's certainly exceptions to that with people that get caught out, but, um, you know, quite often that would be the case. But yeah, you're right, like that that volume tourism was always a always a standing workload in that sense where you you know you get those inevitable jobs at last light with people ringing up with marginal phone signal in their high heel shoes down on the, one of the valley floor tracks somewhere and uh, not not sure where they can get out or the trains finished for the day and <laughs> they were overdue and the, you know those sort of jobs all the time they still happen without you Matt I can tell you that now I know they would be <laughs> some things never change. Yeah. So what are some of the jobs, and you said it was unexpected and, you know, all sorts of things happen, so, you know, hiking or canyon jobs or mountain biking, unique ones you want to share? You know, there's so much variety up there, as, you, as you'd understand, with the, the outdoor adventure sports, everything from base jumpers to rock climbing accidents, bushwalking, the typical rolled ankle type stuff, you know, you'd get these outlier jobs every now and then, and I... I don't know what uh, rating your um, your podcast is going to be, but <laughs> there's one job that's sort of quite uh, comically. Oh, comically is probably a bad way to put it, but you're you're embedded with black humour in this job. But I did do a job one day uh, on one of the tracks at the back of Blackheath with a. It came across as a mountain biking accident, and you you know typically there's going to be a broken collarbone or something like that, and. Anyway, I was working in Blackheath at the time, so I went down the trail and come across the person. I was on my own and I pulled up, saw the, saw the guy on the side of the track with a mountain bike beside him when I, here we are, I pulled up and um, as I've walked up, he's looked up, up, up at me with these desperate 
big puppy eyes and I've looked down between his legs and he'd actually um, broken his scrotum open through his pants by hitting the handlebar over a, over a jump and he's sitting there with um, some of his good friends in his hand saying, what do I do? And I've just looked at him and said, mate, I'm so sorry. I have no idea. <laughs> You're going to have to sit with me until the ambos get here with some pain oh. relief because I don't know. <laughs> oh, the family too. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's quite a, a sight. And the poor guy said to me, oh, I'm meant to be flying home to the UK tomorrow. Do you reckon I'm still going? And I said, mate, I, I'm no ambo, but I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> And, oh uh, man! You know, you get oh. those sort of you get those things happen, and if you don't laugh, you cry in that job. So, um, you know, you, <laughs> we actually sat there and had a bit of a giggle together while we we're waiting for the ambos over a few things. Oh man, he must have been delirious. <laughs> he was quite well composed, actually, given his situation. But oh, lordy! Um, you know, you get those sort of things, and um, you know, <clears throat> you know, they, they are quite seriously contrasted with the opposite end of the spectrum, where you know you've got. Uh, really unfortunate people that have, you know, come a proper cropper and um, found themselves in a real pickle that's, uh, you know, desperately, um, desperately serious. So you never really know what you're going to or what you're going to get on any, any given day. So, you know, that used to keep you on your toes. And uh, I can imagine. And, and you mentioned there, you know, black humour is something that, that happens a lot on the job. And as a you know coping, or if you're not if you're not laughing, you're crying. So, yeah. like you said, that was the lighter end of the the scale of jobs. The, the very nature of the of the role of the job of of the situations that you found yourself in, you can't help but question from you know from the outside perspective how on earth how on earth do people deal with the stuff that you you're faced with every day? Seeing people on the worst day of their lives. Yeah. It's one of those things that I've reflected on a lot over the years and and I don't know whether really at the time I was doing that job full time that I really understood that the things that I was going to, even though they were routine jobs for me, were typically going to be the worst day in someone's life full stop. And I think you get a bit numb and, and you have to, you have to switch off to that that fact um, just for your own survival, really. Um, but yeah, it's it is one of those things that I, um, you know, I hope they're getting better at it because you know, typically back in the day, in the in, you know, in the good old slash bad old days, whatever you want to refer to them as, you know, the debrief was usually a beer at the pub, and um, there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of other support available or afforded to you at the time, and nor nor would it have been acceptable or accepted. Um, given the sort of, uh, I suppose, mandatory robustness your character had to have in that job. Uh, policing's like that generally, uh, and particularly once you add one of the specialist sort of functions onto it, I think there's an expectation that you're even more stoic to that sort of uh, adversity than than normal. So, yeah, that's definitely a definitely a tough thing, you know, like they're um, – it's – uh, it's something I wished I'd done a lot better over my time. Now that I've now that I've had the experience that I've had, and uh, and the unfortunate sort of outcome that that's manifested into for me personally, mm. I wished that I'd actually recognised that that job itself is really, really tough, and mm. um, it's such a uh, you know it's an unusual job, and and it's and it it, it is definitely going to affect you in some way and I probably wished I had to recognize that and manage that better from right back at the start mm. um, and I, I hope they do that better these days. Well, did you notice change like 17 years in the job did you notice things starting to change and more awareness towards things like PTSD? On reflection absolutely um, I think a lot of those changes creep into your life so slowly that you as the individual, don't really notice it. And then if you do, um, you know, everyone says the same thing, but you would do everything you can to mask any any uh, outward presentation of anything that you might be struggling with. So, you know, definitely um, the, the classic signs of, you know, sleeplessness, nightmares, all of that sort of stuff just crept into um, crept into my life just in a way that I just accepted a lot of that sort of um, 
those changes that had happened over the years. And, you know, now that I know what I know and when I, when I look back at it, I go, wow, that was, they were big indicators back then. But, um, you know, I think at the time you just sort of go, oh, it's part of the job and yeah, I've had a rough week or whatever. And, you know, particularly if you've, if you've had a run, like some weeks are absolutely, um, you know, tough, um, particularly when you get a run of really bad fatalities all in one week. And some, sometimes you can go for months without doing one. And then sometimes you'll get three or four in a week. So, um, you just never know, but sometimes those things knock you around a bit and, um, take a bit of a toll, but yeah, mm. it's, it's something that I, I really do wish that I had have had better strategies in place throughout my whole, whole life really to, uh, to help manage those, those, um, uh, consequences of the work that I was doing. The thing that strikes me all the time is, you know, ordinary people doing extraordinary jobs. And I think for those who've never been in emergency services, there's this, I don't know, some sort of strange putting up on pedestals like, oh, well, well they're, they're police, you know, they're trained. They deal with that sort of stuff all the time. They, it must be yeah. there's some sort of an immunity to yeah. it. But but the reality is that there's there's <laughs> not really, is there? No, it's just... It's just another person you're walking past in the street that's doing that work, you know, and um, there's certain, I suppose, uh, resilience building strategies that I guess try and stress inoculate you to a point, like some of your training's meant to be very, you know, realistic to try and get you better prepared to do all those things in real life. But, you know, the reality of it is some of the stuff that happens is just... (laughs) You wouldn't want to do it in training because you don't want to do it in reality and, <laughs> and, and it happens day after day. And um, yeah, so it, it's a, you know, it's a sad reality, I guess, as a, as a, a consequence of doing that sort of work um, for, for a lot of people. Yeah. But it's, it's such valuable work. Like I just, um, yeah, you know, to be able to offer someone at that worst day of their lives, which may be the last day of their lives, you know, whether it be the comfort of a hand on the shoulder or holding a hand or whatever it is, yeah. not even having words to say, um, I don't think you can ever put a, a value on how how priceless that kind of, yeah. you know, those those gestures are. Yeah, that's right. And and even down to, um, you know, as, as hard as they can be, you know, uh, suicide body recoveries are something that, you know, are mm. usually challenging. But, you know, at the end of the day, as you said, like you, you, you're giving someone's loved one back at the end of the day and, and someone has to do that work. And, mm. you know, it's part of part of the job and, you know, you, you do it. Mm. And there's something that it's it's not just about, um, I, I, I think of it like the ripples on a, on a pond, you know, mm. the, the impact happens in, in the centre of 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 this little world that's been created out in the bush under this tree or under this cliff or wherever it is, but the ripples go out out much broader than just the people in the immediate oh, yeah. impact. So w- can you talk to me a little bit about about the sort of the flow and effects to not just the people on the scene? Mm. Yeah, and look, it's one of those things that a lot of people don't really stop and think of what follows a lot of these events too because usually they're subject to some sort of investigation that you know people are involved in for sometimes years um so you know there's a lot of that i I, the term that they use for is vicarious trauma i guess but it's um you know there's a lot of people that have to end up unpacking some of these really tragic events and and recording it and you know there's so many people involved usually in these jobs from forensics to investigators to the to the actual rescue operators and and you know family members getting interviewed and then whatever court system it goes through so there's there's so many more people involved in these types of events normally than just those people that are on the scene that you might see on the news so Mm. yeah it's pretty tricky and um yeah it's it is one of those things that sometimes you know sometimes you can you can get those jobs where you're they're really tough jobs, but you're only you're only exposed to it for a short period of time. And other times, you might be involved in leading the investigation or being part of the investigation, which can go on for years. And and you know, one of the other complexities is some of the more higher profile ones will unfortunately come with a lot of media and and um, political sort of interest, which um, mm. is is another compounding uh, factor on top of what's already pretty challenging anyway. So. You know those sort of uh, higher profile events have got a got an additional um, challenge built into them as well. 
How do you think your experiences over the, over the 17 years, how have they changed the way that you now feel about the bush? Hmm. Yeah. I think for, um, for a long time, for me, it was, and still is usually a place that I can go to and um, enjoy. But unfortunately for me, the Blue Mountains is not on that list anymore, um, just because of the the volume of things that I've done up there. And uh, I was speaking to someone recently that lives up there still that, you know, is trying to invite me up and, <laughs> you know, crack on with some stuff that we used to do. And, and I'm just not up for that these days. Uh, not yet. I, I hope to one day. And I've actually, I've got two daughters and I've, I desperately want to take them up there just to show them what my backyard was because I've got so many great memories from up there. But, um, you know, even literally just getting there for me these days is a challenge. And that's that's one of the prices that I pay for um, for what I've done. And I'm, I'm working through all of that, that side of things now, mm. you know, fairly intensely uh, treatment-wise. But, um, yeah, it is one of those things, unfortunately. There's a lot of, a lot of reminders for things that I'd rather not remember, uh, you know, just driving through the Blue Mountains, let alone getting out in the bush where I've done a lot of, uh, a, a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Having seen so much uh, trauma or pain in other people, what they've gone through, what do you want people who who spend time in the outdoors, who people who love these places, what what should we think about before we go out? What do we need to know? What do we need to do different? I really admire people that go out and love it and enjoy it for what it should be and like what should happen. Mm. And anybody that ever came unstuck and needed rescuing in circumstances where they were well prepared and, you know, capable of what they were undertaking and just had a had misfortune, um, you know, it can be as simple as just slipping off the side of one slippery rock and that's it for you, you're going on a helicopter. Through no ill preparation, they've just unfortunately had that event. And, and I've always actually, I shouldn't say enjoyed those jobs, but I've enjoyed them in the sense that I've been able to help someone that's just been out there loving the bush and you know, enjoying their pursuits that bring them happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was always a bit frustrating when you'd get people that were super underprepared that didn't know what they were getting into but thought they'd give it a go anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, those sort of events were always a bit more challenging for me mentally, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. particularly if they were tricky jobs or, or dangerous jobs. Um, and yet you'd get really quite frustrated at at the people involved when it was just through sheer ill preparation. As a message generally, um, get into it and enjoy it, but uh, do your research and get yourself and your gear and, and um, you know, be prepared for whatever it is that you're undertaking. You know, don't push the boundaries uh, too much. <laughs> mm. And were there common threads, like with the people who did come unstuck who were unprepared, like things you sort of saw coming up time and time again yeah look there was a lot of there were a lot of uh sort of simple i'd call them simple searches up in the mountains with people that were doing one of the you know what would normally be a day walk or a half day walk that have just taken a wrong turn and ended up just pushing on on the wrong track and then become disoriented that was fairly common and you know what Uh, yeah down in the if i keep going it'll get right yeah yeah i'm sure this is what it looked like yeah yeah so stacks and stacks and stacks of those sort of jobs and and you know what that sort of stuff happens and you know you can't you can't blame someone that's just going for a bit of a day bash that's made a made a boo boo on a missed a sign or something and um you know that that sort of stuff happens but when you when you find these people down there in the middle of winter in high heel shoes and um you know completely unprepared for that weather front that's just come through and then all of a sudden they're ringing triple O wanting people to come and pick them up it's like man you know. <laughs> What did you think you were going to do? You know, the other the other side of things is some of the school group adventures and things like that that, um, you know, often came up while, while we're up there as search jobs for, you know, missing or overdue uh, groups. You know, a lot of those were, I guess, just kids finding their boundaries of capability and, and making mistakes. Um, so those sort of things, I guess, were in that, in that basket of, you know um, – they're, they're out there enjoying themselves doing what they did and just pushed it a bit hard or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, look, as a general message, just be prepared, do your research, do your homework before you go and take the right gear. There's so much gear out there now that can make this safer and, 
you know, and if it does all go pear shape, then you can actually get help in remote areas these days with the comms available. Uh, unlike the old days where you'd have mm. to leave a SAR time with a relative and, um, you know, when you didn't turn up, you'd start looking for that needle in the uh, in the Gross Valley somewhere. And, <laughs> you know, th- there is there are so many options these days um, for making these adventures safer. You know, why not? Why not? Why not? I think the challenge is um, that it comes back to people just don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And if you don't know the kind of environment you're going into or expecting to, you're not really knowing what kind of things you need to prepare or what you need to carry or you should because, hey, you live your life in a concrete jungle and, True. and hey, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly out in the yeah. bush, you yeah. know, and, and I want to go to that lookout or I want to go to that waterfall or I want to go to wherever now. Yeah, and it's the, uh, the Instagram mindset too is, um, you know, we can do this in a pair of uh, nice shoes and tiny little shorts and a, and a crop top. Oh, as long as you look good. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, you look at that sort of stuff and go, wow. And, and, and you know, the other the other analogy for that is like the sometimes it used to come up where you'd have these really experienced uh, indoor rock climbers that decide to tackle one of the big big faces up in the mountains. And, um, you know, it's a different world. And, um, you know, they're full of confidence from their capabilities on the uh, poly, poly blocks in the uh, rock climbing gyms and get out there and come unstuck because the techniques are different. The... Um, you know, everything's different. So, it's, you know, thinking they're prepared, but they're actually not. And it's that that sort of, I guess you could put that over a lot of uh, the mishaps and misadventures that happen is, you know, a little bit of, you know, overconfidence and um, and underestimating the task at hand combined together is a bit, bit of a bad combination. Massive thanks for the support from the team at Paddy Palin, who since 1930 have been leaders in travel and outdoor adventure. In fact, did you know that Paddy himself, a member of the Sydney Bushwalkers Club, was a volunteer in the original search and rescue arm of the Federation of Bushwalking Clubs in New South Wales? Hmm, nice one, Paddy. Um, so thinking a little more about your journey where you're at now, and, and you talked about dealing with stuff um, from what you've seen and and places that that puts you in today talk to me a little bit about what that place is for you now and and some of the work that you're involved with or some of the the things that you're involved with now and why yeah sure I'd been cracking on since I left the police force uh with fire rescue as a part-time firefighter retained firefighter and you know it's the, I guess it's probably that analogy of the the bucket filling up slowly over you know the drip 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 and um you know, I guess there's probably a bit of bit of that that's happened to me over the years, and and it's been quite a while since you know I joined the police in 1995. So, you know, that's a fairly long innings in the emergency services world, and yeah. So a couple of years ago, I had a, I had a, um, I, I call I don't actually know what to call it. I call it an event or a or a moment or a, you know, I fell down, I fell in a heap, whatever title you want to put to it. Um, you know, I really came unstuck a couple of years ago um, with, uh, you know, really severe PTSD and um, and and major depression, actually, uh, as a result of uh, a few few things that had happened. And um, it, it really did rock me um, and my whole family. It sort mm-hmm. of, it, it, it came on very slowly and I held on to it for far too long trying to, um, you know, manage and deal with things myself. And, and what I know now is that's absolutely the worst thing you can do because it makes the, the treatment side of this condition so much harder because you're, um, mm. you're just sort of entrenching all of these bad um, practices and everything is getting embedded uh, uh, in, in the wrong way in your mind. And, um yeah, so I've I've had fairly intensive treatment over the last couple of years to try and uh, get myself back on track, um, so to speak. And um, you know, I've had a lot of fantastic support from my family and my wife, particularly, um, who's mm. been you know, a huge uh, supporter and advocate of where I'm at. And um, we're both trying to bring a bit more awareness to the impacts, I guess, of emergency services work that people struggle through. And and um, that's not just the sort of mainstream, what you would see on the TV either. There's so many, you know, volunteer groups, there's, you know, private sector responders that, you know, do all this sort of work as well that 
are all, you know, all, all potentially affected by this. So, um, you know, it's one of those things that I think that we can do a lot better at and uh, manage a lot better as a community, as a particularly organisationally. But, you know, just the, there's a lot more that can be done to support people like me, um, both preventatively and if it still unfortunately um, eventuates, then how better to help people that end up in the position that I was in. It's also that ripple effect. It's not just you and, the, you know, the frontline people who find themselves in these kind of situations and, and with sicknesses and illnesses like this, but also it's the families. It's it's everyone around them that also is, yeah. you know, caught up in this big tornado of, of, um, of mental ill health. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think everyone's probably well aware of the the focus that's been on the um, DVA system of the uh, Defence Force and some of its problems. And, you know, it's going through a Royal Commission because of the, the seriousness of those problems. And realistically, what we face here in New South Wales, and it's no different in most of the other jurisdictions, is very similar to the uh, the issues they're, they're facing with problems of, you know, getting good treatment early, um, you know, not having battles built within the system that's actually there meant to meant to look after you. And you're right, your whole family ends up getting consumed by this because it's hard to say it, but that's if you're lucky enough to still have your family because unfortunately a lot of people ended up coming down with these types of mental illnesses and, and mental injuries are, you know, quite hard to live with. <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of them struggle to maintain their um, – their relationships if they're lucky enough to have one in the first place and mm. you know so many of them don't survive and and you know they're left to then try and navigate this on their own while they're suffering these conditions which is just uh you know uh, I, I don't know how you do it on your own to be honest with you. I, I i don't think i'd have been able to navigate what i've had to navigate on my own i just don't think i'd be able to do it do you want to just tell us a little bit about what the Heart to Heart Walk is and and the work that you're doing with the podcast to support that. I had a this burning desire for podcasts after I, I found a lot of comfort in them when I was really unwell and I actually listening to other people's stories of what they'd been through and, and um, how this particular condition had manifested in them, whether it had been post-military service or something similar. I found a lot of validation in the sense that I actually didn't feel so abnormal. Mm. And, you know, when you listen to what other people had been through and how this condition presented in them, I went, wow, that's exactly the same as me. So I really started finding a lot of comfort in these stories. And then, but there wasn't a lot of content from emergency services or policing sort of thing in the Australian context anyway. It was mostly military stuff. So I really started to think, you know, I'd love to get more of that content out there to help people like me. And then around about the same time, I, I stumbled across a post about this thing called the Heart to Heart Walk, which was the heart of country to the heart of the nation. So the centre of Australia to the centre of Canberra to Parliament House. And it was all about raising awareness for the um, mental health of first responders and a few other matters around getting better statistics on the the actual seriousness of the event and also this anecdotal data that you know, not only are emergency services workers more uh, susceptible to uh, suicide, but premature mortality in the sense that they don't live very long mm. uh, quite often. And I, I think that's that manifestation of the- So interesting. Yeah, that just that chronic stress state that, that uh, so many police and emergency services workers live in day to day. It just takes a massive physical toll. So- that hypervigilance kind of stuff. Yeah. I've had military people um, explain it. You know, it's like being on deployment every day. And, uh, you know, when you're living and breathing in that state and doing it on your days off, you know, it's just, it takes a toll on your body. You know, the, there's certainly evidence out there that suggests that it's certainly um, life-shortening, unfortunately, and but there's not a lot of information about it. So that's another another thing that the walk is about. So, yeah, it's going to kick off on the 1st of July out in uh, Lambert Centre of Australia. All the navigation nerds can now look up the Lambert Centre of Australia. And, in fact, if they're nav nerds, they'd know <laughs> what that is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're going to sort of do uh, community engagement activities with first responders at some of those centres on the way through as the walk passes through town. Uh, but it's certainly not something that we're expecting the individual walkers like myself to walk every step of the whole walk. It's it's very much a case of aiming for 40Ks a day. If you're feeling up for it, yeah, walk the whole 40. If you're not, walk 10 and swap with someone and, and um, you know, be part of the support crew. 
I made contact with the organisers and said, look, I'd, I'm on board. I'd love to be part of this thing, but I've got this other idea. And I explained this idea of getting a podcast off the ground to them. And they said that would be fantastic if you could support us that way. And and around about that same time, my wife bought me this old 1969 old Franklin caravan to do up as a project. Yeah, to keep me sort of uh, mentally occupied and uh, to, you know, as something I could do with the, you know, as an activity to do with the kids and, and her, you know, working on it. And um, so we set it up as a mobile podcast studio and the idea is that it's coming along the walk, just trying to get those stories out there into the um, the great unknown. And um, yeah, it's uh, there'll be certainly some characters on this trip for the whole thing and uh and we'll come across stacks in the in the towns that we're going through so hopefully we'll uh, we'll capture some of these amazing stories on the on the way and even just um as you're moving through like being a support to the first responders in these remote and regional areas because i mean a lot of the places out there you're getting their volleys you know who yeah. who are doing yep. um almost exclusively yeah. yeah it's some of the really messy stuff so yep. that's um yeah that's amazing and what's the what's the message you're taking to Canberra what's the what's the the heart of this all about yeah so the centerpiece of the uh, of the walks purpose is uh, is a 2019 report by the Australian government the as a Senate inquiry that um, produced a report called the people behind triple zero mental health of our first responders and it came out with 14 recommendations that were about exactly what we've just spoken about and a whole bunch of other things about research and recommendations for treatment providers and a whole raft of things. But effectively what happened is the government noted most of them. You know, the long and the short of it is nothing's been done about this huge inquiry that was done back in 2019. And a lot of what's in it would fix the things that we're trying to raise the awareness of. So it's mm. it's really just a call to action, something that we already know lots about, and it would make a big difference to people like me and so many emergency services workers across the country, be that full-time paid volunteer, whatever. Um, it, it's all, all around looking after these people that do this really tough work mm. better. It did get tied up with a whole bunch of things because it, it came out of the federal government, a lot of it is actually a state and territory issue to implement an action. And basically none of the states and territories did anything about it. Mm. And it's just sitting there on the shelf and it feels like nothing's happening. Yeah. It's it's a big a big thing that you guys are putting on, um, but it's so it's just so important. I mean, it sounds like even the words I'm saying don't even sound like they have any weight behind them, they're just words, but um, when you think about that ripple effect and the number that thousands and thousands of people's lives who are affected through PTSD and associated um, mental ill health because of what they see as their job, you know, as, as a part of the job, which is to help people, which is to, you know, be that comfort, to be that that person to, you know, to bring someone home to their family, whatever it is. It just it just seems like a no-brainer that we can't do something about these 14 recommendations. So, But th- there's another part to your podcast too that, that, that I think is also really valuable is, is the hot debrief side of things and is that that's going to morph into something else isn't it yeah look that was the original idea that i had for the podcast was to do what i referred to as a hot debrief with really interesting you know first responders from around australia and that was you know there's so many people with amazing stories and amazing careers um, be that you know one-off crazy story that they might have from something they've done once or you know just a lifetime of of amazing work and then what i decided to break that down into was exactly that process of a hot debrief after a major incident but after talking to them is to ask them you know in your life or in your career um doing this amazing work as a first responder what do you think you what do you think you did well what do you think you didn't do so well and if you had your time again what would you do differently and use that as a bit of a springboard for hopefully people maybe coming into these these roles or that are that is in them and reflecting on where they're at uh maybe give them some sort of um you know, something to think about within themselves, um, whether they're starting out or already in there. And, you know, let's debrief some of these people that have had amazing, amazing careers and and endured them or, or not, you know. It seems trite to say, you know, it's all about us learning lessons from stories that other people have gone through and other people's journey. So we don't have to go through the same yeah. the same shit that they've gone through. Or so, so we, exactly. can, we yeah. can do life, you know, maybe better. That's it. Yeah. And, and there's so much that can be passed down. You know, that's often not, I think, because people are, you know, sometimes people are just so bloody humble, they won't <laughs> tell their amazing stories. So 
it's uh, it's hard to get it out of them sometimes. Yeah, I think there's a there's quite a powerful platform in that sort of storytelling piece and people driving around on night shift or whatever might listen to one of those stories one day and take something away from it. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there's absolutely bucket loads of stuff in there. Now. And that actually leads me to, to say that the next time that we chat, Matthew Bryan, I'm looking forward to chatting uh, about you about a slightly different angle, which will be yeah. a little bit like a hot debrief. And it's going <laughs> to look at a, at, a, at a moment in your life that on reflection, you know, probably was quite a pivotal moment when you found yourself on the other side of the rescue situation. So let's mm. not give too much away about that just yet. But um, <laughs> where can people find you? Where can they listen to the podcast? Where can they find out more about the Heart to Heart Walk and the, the work that you're doing? Yeah. So the Heart to Heart Walk's got a website, which is heart, the number two, heartwalk.org. Or uh, the podcast, uh, the details are available through Instagram. So we've got an Instagram page, which is um, h2hwalk.podcast. Um, otherwise, just search your podcast platform for Heart to Heart Walk podcast. Fantastic. Look, I'll put all of that in the show notes. Yeah, cool. People can link on through and maybe even look at ways that they can support and help out and start sharing some of these uh, these important messages and stories around first responder mental health. That'd be great. Thanks very much for having me on. It's been really, really good to finally catch up with you. Yeah. And you too, Matt. It's, yeah. it's, it's, after all yeah. these years. Yeah. Well, look, I, I look forward to the day when you feel um, you feel in the right place to be able to bring your girls up to the mountains yeah. and uh yeah i look forward to that day where whenever that may be in the in the future yeah i've got a fair few supporters up there that'll help me through it i think but yeah i am looking i am looking forward to it i just yeah the time will come the time will come well yeah. until our next time we chat uh thank you so much for joining me here on the rescued podcast and all the best and we'll chat soon the Rescued podcast is produced on the unceded lands of the Gundungurra and Darug people of the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. I pay my respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge their enduring connection to and care for country. Special thanks to our sponsors, Paddy Pallon, and to Jen Brown for production support. This has been a Lots of Fresh Air production. <laughs>